Hey folks, this is another Rob show, this time focused on SFD business, namely Vietnam and its effects on the United States. One quick announcement right at the beginning. I've had some complaints about the length of the intros, so nowadays, if there is housekeeping, it'll be at the end of the episode, and all introductions, both what I say and historical speeches with music, will now end three minutes into the episode. So, if you've got a podcast app that can skip ahead, set it to 180 seconds and it will get you there. I'm not as much in control of the hardware setup during these talk episodes, and there were, like there always are, some audio hiccups, so I hope you can excuse them. I'm John, he's Rob, we're discussing the Vietnam War, and this is Talk for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Hello. We are live. Welcome to live uh, programming here at the More Freedom Foundation. Today, I'm joined once again by uh, John Coombs of the Safe for Democracy podcast. Uh, Unfortunately, Ernie has had some issues and will not be able to join us today. But uh, today, we are discussing the Vietnam War's effects on U.S. culture. It's a tremendously important issue. I think it probably makes sense to begin with a bit of a disclaimer. We are going to be very focused today on the U.S. experience of the war in Vietnam. We're not focusing as much as that's the point of the program that we're doing today is to look at the United States, the imperial power, if you will, and what the Vietnam experience taught us or did not teach us, what it should have taught us, perhaps. But this is not in any way to minimize the extraordinary horror and and triumph of the Vietnamese people in that war. John, you have anything to say on that? 
Yeah, this is the first of these shows that Rob and I have done that's more focused on my side of things. And everybody who's heard us before knows that Safe for Democracy is a show about U.S. foreign policy disasters. So that's why the focus in this show is on the U.S. But if you want the perspective of the Vietnamese people, because as I've told Rob, some people think that I give too much perspective to the peoples that are involved in our foreign policy disasters, you can get that whole story in my show. We're like six hours into the Vietnam series right now, and we haven't even gotten to the U.S. yet. So the full story, it's there. It's at saferdemocracy.com. And I mean, just briefly, I mean, over a million people dead, extraordinary ecological catastrophe wrought by, you know, from Agent Orange to napalm to to everything that we did to the country. It was uh, honestly just one chapter in a 25-year independence struggle. 46 to 75. Oh, that uh, 29-year independence struggle. Uh, so the, the the story of Vietnam in this era is an extraordinary one, but it is not the story that we are telling today. My specific project is right now is a book called Avoiding the British Empire that attempts to apply the lessons of the peak and fall of the British Empire to the moment that we're in right now in the United States and how we can sort of learn lessons from that experience. And one of the things that was interesting about the British experience is they had a lot of opportunities to learn that they passed that they passed up, thinking specifically of a disaster they had in Afghanistan in the 1840s. And it's, it's interesting delving into that history and realizing that Vietnam kind of plays the same role in the United States. We had an excellent education, a horrific education in the pitfalls of trying to run a large-scale imperial war in an area we don't understand for aims that aren't particularly clear. And uh, for, a, for a brief moment in time, that was actually an effective check on U.S. expansion and aggression. That moment, as any viewer of John or my content will realize and will well know, that moment is long over. Um, and we're now doing very similar things in Iraq and in this coming week. It uh, seems likely that we might be doing very similar things in Syria, starting off this whole process again, which is quite horrifying, which is why I think it's a really good time to spend some time taking a look at the U.S. experience in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. And for anyone who thinks, not that there's necessarily anyone who does think, but for anyone who thinks that Syria is only tangentially related because what's going on in Syria is bluster and what went on in Vietnam was geopolitics, they're exactly the same. So to kick off, we've, we've got an outline this time. I don't know if we'll stick to that, but what we wanted to talk about first made more sense in a three-man context, but it still makes sense now. What is our personal experience with Vietnam? What did we learn from the system that is the educational system? And then what did we receive from the culture? Uh, I think, Rob, you've got me by like a year and a half uh, age-wise, so. (laughs) Thanks, John. Uh, John's very kind. In in truth, I've got about a decade on John and Ernie, who would have been joining us. So this actually uh, lets us tease out something that's, I think, pretty important. When I was growing up in the 1980s, and even as a kid in the 1980s, Vietnam was something that I was very aware of. It was a part of U.S. culture in a way that it isn't today. It was, it was kind of omnipresent in discussions of foreign policy and in, even in popular culture. And it was not a triumphant story, even in the 1980s, even in the Reagan era. It was uh, something that 
everybody was very conscious was a mistake and it was something that we had lost and lost miserably. This was everywhere. Um, I was, I grew up on, well, in the eighties, uh, I was uh, a kid on the Upper East Side. So it was kind of obviously kind of a sort of cloistered, snooty way to grow up. So maybe I had a different experience of things, but I mean, it really was everywhere. Vietnam was really everywhere in the culture. And I think a good way of looking at that would be the Oscars. It seemed for, for, for a bit there, almost every other year, there would either be a prestige film about Vietnam that, that either won the Oscars or was nominated for the Oscars. So this was always something that was present in the culture. I was also thinking recently of, there was a television show called Tour of Duty. And this was a TV show, obviously long before the era of prestige TV, but it was it was a well-regarded, widely watched television show on Vietnam. And remember, this is in the 1980s. Some people had cable. We didn't. Most of the people in the United States had 12 channels or even fewer large networks to watch. And one of their three options on a given night was a really depressing scripted drama television show on Vietnam. I mean, this was something that was everywhere. I've talked on the channel a bit about comparing the sort of sentence, the U.S. Congress's treatment of Yemen today versus its treatment of the Reagan administration's attempts to get involved in Nicaragua. And the U.S. Congress did largely manage to shut that down. And I think a lot of the justifications they used for that were, we really don't want another Vietnam. And uh, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think there was there was a real consciousness in the way that people looked at foreign policy issues and then back then of the way that escalation works, the way that getting involved in a country can be sort of a ladder, as we're definitely seeing in Syria today, as we definitely saw in Iraq. People tend to look at Iraq as if, oh, you know, Bush just decided to do this. Well, it was actually the first Bush that decided to do this. And then there was this continued policy throughout Bush, Clinton, first Bush, Obama. And it, it, these things just keep escalating. We have escalating involvement unless we're pushed out. And this is disastrous. There was a real consciousness of that back in the 1980s. Heard it called the Vietnam War Syndrome or just the Vietnam Syndrome. It was something worth holding on to, this consciousness that foreign policy can be dangerous, that it can whipsaw back at you. Um, and I think that's at the time of the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991, I always forget the exact year on that. At the time, it was touted by people in the Bush administration, by the sort of thinking classes as helping to wipe away the stain of Vietnam, which is kind of extraordinary because it didn't wipe away a thing. It basically just started the Vietnam process in another country, Iraq, which we're still still dealing with today. And if, and I, if I actually, actually interject there. Uh, I think, I, I think, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, that was pretty much my spiel, if you want to. Well, uh, I can now hear how the youngins deal with Vietnam, you know, how, they, yeah. how we learn about Vietnam today. Well, just on the Iraq question, you know, some people might see your characterization of George Bush Sr. going into Kuwait as starting the Vietnam process again as, as somewhat unfair because we had to go into Kuwait. Iraq invaded Kuwait. We were defending the rights of the sort of autocratic free world. But anybody who's listened to my shows, for instance, knows that we'd already been involved in Iraq for a decade at that point, helping them to fight Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. And it was our unintentional and tacit go-ahead that allowed or that gave Saddam Hussein the ambit to invade Kuwait in the first place. So the first Gulf War wasn't the first act in this drama. It was already a decade or more in. 
Absolutely. And also, I, I think what I think a lot of people, which once again, from my, 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 my great seniority, I'll point to uh, during the 90s, like being on a college campus, Iraq was already seen as a place that was occupied and destroyed by the U.S. military. Uh, we were operating. I think there were no fly zones. There was a whole mess of stuff that we were doing. I mean, we were regularly bombing. Iraq, and uh, because of the sanctions regimes, the, the classic line on the campus at the University of Michigan back around the turn of the century was, you know, we, these sanctions were killing half a million Iraqi children a year. I don't know, I can't vouch for that at all, but this was an ongoing process. This this sort of thing with Iraq was something that just sort of just kept on rolling and rolling, which is why people who know anything about foreign policy were really, really leery of the, oh, well, with Assad, we just need to set up no-fly zones mm -hmm. like we did in Iraq, and it'll be fine. And then it'll just be up to maybe the next president or the president after that to just follow through on the logic of that and completely take out the Assad regime and have another multi-trillion dollar mm -hmm. albatross around our necks. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to this more later, but the other thing that's important about us having been involved in Iraq 10 years beforehand is I don't know how many Trump fans we have in the audience, but at least they'll know this term, the deep state. There's a more permanent state that exists within the bureaucracy versus the elected offices of the government. Um, Which I totally believe in, though. It's not exactly the way that... No, it's real. It's just not necessarily sinister. But what happens is you have, like we had in Iraq during the, the years of the Iraq War, you have State Department guys who are on the ground. You've got guys in the CIA who are helping them to target Iranian forces. You've got all manner of expert bureaucrats who become involved with the regime in the country in question. Now, the presidents may change out, but those guys stay involved and they stay interested and they move up the rungs of the State Department of the CIA and they start recommending the next step, the next step of involvement. That kind of turns around in Iraq because we end up making war on Iraq. But you look at stuff like Syria, we've got guys who are invested in the success of this Kurdish forces, of the Syrian Democratic Forces. So once you dip a toe into the water, it's not just a toe. It's a toe that grows. Well, I don't know. I don't know if the metaphor really works out that way. But once you're in, you're in. Uh, just to no fly zones is never just no fly zones. And just a brief note on the a lot of sort of my worldview towards Syria, actually, my sort of form my general worldview, but also uh, just the the my sense of the tragedy of these of these events is. We focus a lot on the, the lying, and I think we'll get to it, and the, the, the mendacity of the people who were involved in Vietnam. And I think at the top level, that's very true. But also, you know, at the lower level in Vietnam, I'm sure you had people who were exactly the same as they are in Syria today. Well, of course, all the U.S. folks live in Istanbul, whereas they're incredibly invested in the struggles of these, these quite some, some, some of which quite sympathetic rebels, you know, sort of Syrian rebels, whereas I'm sure there were hundreds of thousands, millions of tremendously sympathetic people who were invested in the South Vietnamese regime. Mm -hmm. And once you create those bureaucracies of people who are tremendously invested in a losing proposition, you have really good people who are tremendously dedicated to really bad ideas. Mm -hmm just a personal anecdote. I was in Istanbul and I had, there was a week, I don't know if anyone else would remember this, but there was a particular week during the, oh, this was, this would have been back in 2016 or something like that. The Syrian war was going really badly for the rebels. And there was something like 50 
State Department officials or something like that that wrote a letter to Obama saying, good Lord, like, this is our official protest. You must intervene in Syria. You must do more against Assad to da, da, da. And it was, you know, it was sincere, what have you. And I ripped into this because it was, you know, I mean, as sincere as these people were, it's like they're basically, you know, advocating for another Iraq. And it's a terrible, terrible idea. And I just ripped into them on Facebook. And I was actually, I'd, I'd organized a party that weekend. And like one of the guys who had written that, document who had signed that sort of showed up at the party. And it was it was like, it was very hard for me because I knew this person to be an incredibly dedicated person in terms of humanitarian relief and this, that, and the other thing. But because we had set up this situation, he was deeply invested and deeply and, and seriously interested in advocating on the behalf of people who were leading the United States in a disaster and their own country in a disaster, frankly. And it's something that I'd, I'd bet any amount of money on that we'll see develop if we do get involved in Syria. But one of the interesting dynamics that took place in Vietnam is that you had bureaucracies that were action-oriented. So the MACV, the Military Advisory Command Vietnam, which was the military, and then the operations side of the CIA, those were the guys who continually produced bad intelligence and set it up top. Optimistic bad intelligence. But through the whole conflict, from the 1950s through to the end of the 1970s, the intelligence side of the CIA continually produced honest, pessimistic reports of the situation in the country because they didn't need to push more funding for their agenda. You know, But that's a different situation from the State Department guys you're talking about, which is coming from a more humanitarian place. But anyway, so getting back to what we were talking about quite a long time ago. Well, just first, just to back up what Rob was saying. Uh, the Deer Hunter came out in 1978. Apocalypse Now came out in 1979. Born in the USA was 84. Platoon was 86. MASH ran from 72 to 83. That's about the Korean War, but really it's about Vietnam. Goodnight Saigon, which is Billy Joel's song, came out in 82. Hamburger Hill, which is a god-awful movie, came out in 87. And then recently, just to talk about how this has faded out into my own youth, uh, in the 2000s, we've pretty much got We Were Soldiers, 2002, which was a pre-9-11 film because they shot it before 9-11. And then uh, Tropic Thunder, which came out in 2008, which uh, we can't really get into this episode, but I defend to the death. That's actually a pretty incisive Vietnam War movie. But me growing up, what I got in U.S. history, and this is this is something that our, uh, our third Ernie backed up. For whatever reason in Michigan, I took U.S. history, I think every year of grade school, and then every year of high school, I got some form of it. And except for those... Sorry, two years in high school. Except for those two years in high school, it was just retelling the revolution over and over and over again. Just the revolution, maybe from colonies to revolution to 1812, 10 times. And it wasn't so much history as hagiography. Hey, this this was a almost a legendary positive event that happened in the history of the world. That's that's standard state-based education. It's, it's a propaganda regime aimed at its own youth. That's kind of the point. But only once in, in all of those years did I ever get anything on Vietnam, and only because I had Karen Lessenberry, who was voted like 10 years in a row the best history teacher in the state of Michigan. And it was still, even then, only about two weeks. So you talk about the difference between maybe your upbringing and mine. I got nothing, man. I got nothing in Vietnam. And the only reason it ended up fascinating me was because for whatever reason, I ended up fascinated with all of those Vietnam War movies I just, I just uh, rattled off. The other thing I wanted to mention here, because it's... My upbringing is no longer really applicable because I now I'm now I'm incredibly well versed in this. But 
I was just talking to Rob about that Vietnam is going to be the end of safer democracy uh, in all likelihood. I'm going to law school in August, and that's pretty much going to be the end of the, the end of the thing. But the reason it was going to be the finale, you know, after I did Nicaragua and after I did Honduras, uh, Argentina and Chile and the School of the Americas and Indonesia and assassinating Lumumba in Congo. After everything else, Vietnam was going to be the cap off. It's going to be the finale because Vietnam encapsulates everything for me from stuff like failures to learn from history. That is that the French fought a better war than we did and we refused to learn from them because they were French to stuff I mean, crazy esoterica, like uh, Rob just mentioned the environmental destruction that went on in Vietnam because of things like Agent Orange. Well, Monsanto, the seed company that now owns like 90% of all GMO seeds and produces something like 85% of all seeds for industrial agriculture in the world, Monsanto got its start producing Agent Orange for the U.S. government. Before that, they were, were some rinky-dink little company. So Vietnam encapsulates everything, uh, which is why I'm interested in it and why in this show I wanted to talk about what it means for the U.S. and why it is that we're still talking about it. At least I'm still talking about it nowadays. So that's why I want to do the show. All right. Uh, so what first up on your agenda is... Lying in Politics. Lying in Politics. Lying in Politics is the title of an essay by Hannah Arendt. It's part of her Crises in the Republic. And she focuses on Vietnam, but I see the Vietnam War is really the beginning of a trend in U.S. politics of lying to the people, especially with regard to foreign policy, not as an exception, but as the rule. So at the end of the Second World War, the Republican Party has been out of power for decades, and they're looking around for an issue to seize on that will allow them to force the Democrats out of power. So what happens during Truman's term is that we lose China. That's a long story to go into, but because of Henry Luce at Time Magazine and a whole lot of other stuff, we, the American people, felt for some reason that we kind of owned China, that China was ours under Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists. So what happens is Chiang Kai-shek, because he's a terrible leader, is defeated by Mao Zedong. He flees to Taiwan and China falls. We lose China. So what the Republicans do is they make this a wedge issue. They say that the Democrats collaborated with the communists in China to lose it. Evidence for this is that a lot of the old China hands, a lot of the State Department people, were sort of pro-communist. Not because they liked communism, but because they thought Chiang Kai-shek, as he was and his regime was, totally corrupt and totally ineffective. And that we should have stopped supporting him and made friends with the communists. So what happens is that they end up making this a wedge issue. They ruin the careers of all these guys in the State Department. They sort of spark off Joe McCarthy's red-baiting run in the Senate. And what happens is that the Democratic Party decides that it's not going to continue to try to explain things to the American people because they try to explain the fall of China. They release this incredibly thorough document. Nobody reads it. Everybody thinks that the Democrats are basically communists. And from that point on, neither party tells the full story of any foreign policy decision to the American people because they think that the American people are too dumb. They might be right, but too dumb to understand what they're selling. The way this plays into Vietnam is, especially on the campaign trail with JFK, JFK sells the idea that the Republicans are soft on communism, right? Because they're not helping out the South Vietnamese regime enough. In order to sell that idea, JFK has to continue saying that South Vietnam is absolutely crucial to the world fight against communism, even though he knows it's not. It's a little known fact that everybody in government who ever sold the idea of the domino theory to the public never actually believed in the domino theory in private. 
It was always just a reasoning to sell to the public because they thought the public wasn't smart enough to understand what was going on. What ends up happening is that the Democrats sell over and over and over again the idea that Vietnam is essential. And then to back up that claim after JFK gets elected, he has to continue saying it's essential to the Congress. The Congress will give him the money to support the regime that he said needs to be supported, even though he knows it doesn't. And that dynamic plays through the whole war in Vietnam. We continue escalating for reasons that were made up. And we continue to use those reasons because we said them so many times in public that we couldn't go back on them. And it's interesting how invested many people still are in those approaches. Uh, you know, you can, you know, from the National Review to Prager University, you can find people who are still like, we could have won in Vietnam, you know, just sort of leaving behind entirely the, the question, was there any point to winning in Vietnam? Was there any point at all other than trying to stifle and strangle something that didn't deserve to be strangled? Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting that my my, uh, my father, who typically described is is somewhat to the right of Attila the Hun, his take on Vietnam is that, yeah, it was Truman. Truman fucked it up. If we had just, you know, Ho Chi Minh was a great partner against the Japanese. If we'd just, just gone with him instead of uh, letting the French do their thing, you know, probably never would have happened. And I actually do, you know, I'm, I'm probably more more of a fan of the Cold War than you are, John, or I actually believe in some of the justifications, whereas I, I doubt that you do. I do feel that worldwide communism was a real threat. And uh, I, you know, I've, I've gone back and forth with that. I do wonder if like, even with all the, the lying, even with all the waste and destruction, was the Vietnam War, you know, sort of useful in tying down all those resources from the communists or, or something like that? That was sort of something that I, I wondered about. But then you, you just look at the aftermath, and it, it's it's within four years of the end of South Vietnam that China and Vietnam are getting into a war. Uh, this mm -hmm. this whole, I, I do believe that at, at periods in the early 20th century, end of the 40s and 50s, worldwide communism, when it was fresh, when it was new and 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 rampaging, was a real threat. But by the by the 60s and 70s, I think everybody was realizing, and if you you know, or should have been realizing. Well, just just the, the the primacy of national interest, you know, just how important. And if you look at all of the it's been about two decades since I've done this. But if you look at the history of the Soviet Union and how they had to deal with stuff and just how important nationality and nationalism always was for them from the beginning, if anybody in the Pentagon was actually thinking they should have realized, wait a second, like the Vietnamese are about as interested in working with the Chinese as the Chinese are with Russia. You know, these mm -hmm. people border each other and freaking hate each other. And uh, there was really no reason, no reason at all for yeah. us to be just a complete wasted own goal. And also, the, the while I'm sure there was significant Chinese and Russian support for the Vietnamese, I, I think that the, the relevant analogy Today is uh, the Iranian support for the Houthis. Excuse me. <laughs> in that, um, thank you. In that, uh, for spent a lot of time poo-pooing uh, Iranian involvement in Yemen because you know if you look at a map and you know Saudi Arabia is there and they've got a blockade and this that and the other thing. But there is a a, a non-zero amount of money and expertise that Iran is pumping into Yemen to to stick it to the to the Saudis. But it is it is it is negligible. It is tiny. It is very very easy 
for the Iranians to get and you know incredible multiples of their effort because they've got really dedicated people on the ground who want to fight the Saudis who are putting their people on the ground and that's mm. you know very similar to Vietnam in that the Chinese and the Russians could funnel some arms or something like that a tiny amount to have this incredibly outsized effect because the United States insisted on being there on the ground and, and that, so yeah so even that even that justification that I used to think Looking at Yemen, I'm like, oh, no, wait, no, we're just, we were just the Saudis in Vietnam. That didn't mm -hmm. actually provide any benefit at all. Yeah. Which is really sad because mm -hmm. it just impacts again, just like, the, you know, obviously the million, millions of Vietnamese and Cambodians, but also, you know, just those 50,000, 50,000 American soldiers, the trillion dollars. I mean, it was sort of the, the complete derailing of the great society, you know, all of the money that could have gone towards something a little more worthwhile. Yeah. And there's a few points there. First is that at the end of the Second World War, if you're worried about communism, about any country going communist, well, then you, I guess, yeah, you had to get involved in Vietnam. But if you're worried about the com in turn, about the third communist international, about communist parties being run from Moscow, well, then you really only ever had to be worried about Eastern Europe, where there were real concerns, you know, the Prague Spring and the invasion of Hungary and all that stuff. That that was bad. That was democratic societies getting destroyed and becoming part of the Warsaw Pact. That's that's no good. But it was obvious to some people, to some observers, even in 1946 and 47, that national interests, that nationalism was always going to be a stronger force than communism. And yeah, we started to wake up to that in general in the 60s and 70s. But George Kennan, from the long telegram on, selling that story immediately. He was saying, we don't have to worry about the fall of China. The Chinese hate the Russians. The Russians hate the Chinese. Neither of them are going to listen to the other. And for that very reason, Truman and Dean Acheson and the rest of those guys pushed Kennan out of the State Department because the log telegram for them was useful because it outlined the strategy of containment. But everything else he was saying did not square with their view of the post-war world. And then the other thing is there's this excellent quote from Ho Chi Minh about 1945 when he started to negotiate with the French who were coming back into Vietnam and offering to the French sort of a protectorate, becoming sort of a Canada and there were people in his Communist Party and in, in, in the Viet Minh who were advocating the idea of partnering with the Chinese because at the end of the war, the Chinese occupied half the country and the British occupied the other half, and both of them let the French in. And Ho Chi Minh said, I would rather smell French shit for a decade than sniff Chinese shit for a millennium because as any Vietnamese knows, the Chinese dominated that country for uh, a thousand years and more. So the Vietnamese were never going to be a good part of the Chinese. And the only reason the Chinese were giving them aid in the first place is that they wanted to tie down American resources. But then Nixon made nice with the Chinese and the Chinese started building up their war effort to take Vietnam back, uh, which didn't which worked out about as hot for them as it did for us. So, <laughs> Really, I, I, the, the, the interpretations I'd read of that was that uh, the whole point of that Chinese invasion was just to sort of make a point, break some shit and get out. Were they actually attempting to take... Well, I mean, the point is get in, break some shit and get out unless it goes pretty well. And then it's maybe hang out for a little while. True. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got lying in politics. The end of this section that I thought was interesting is, um, well, so the lying in politics thing begins because the Democrats don't think that they can convince the American people of a nuanced argument. In fact, exactly the argument that Kennan was making. They thought Americans couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that communism was bad and then shift to maybe communism's not that bad as long as there's a strong nationalist element. So they just stuck with communism is bad. But this morphs over the decades to LBJ basically just saying 
I'm just going to lie to the American people because I care more about the Great Society than I do about them knowing that I'm shipping tens of thousands of men to Vietnam. And then to Nixon, where it's just, I'm going to say I'm going to end the war, and then I'm not. And that's it. And then I think the ultimate permutation is you get to the Iraq War, and it's like, you know, our motives here are confused. Maybe I have some sort of daddy complex. Maybe I just want to get my Halliburton friends rich. But there's no greater story that they want to sell to the United States people. And there's no other program, like the Great Society under LBJ, that they want to get done. So they got to lie about the war to get that done. Just lying for the sake of lying, I guess? It's interesting you mentioned that sort of Vietnam thing. That There was one lesson that the U.S. government and the sort of broader bureaucracy learned. And it's interesting looking back at that Vietnam protest era. And uh, I think the draft ended before the end of the Vietnam War. Is that correct? I'm not 100% sure. Like I said, I'm only up to 1946. But, but the drawdown in troops happened significantly before 1975. Yeah, draft, draft ends January 27, 73. And troop drawdown started in Nixon's first term, I believe. Exactly. So what the U.S. National Security Bureaucracy learned and learned very well was that if you've got a volunteer army, and also it's not just the fact that we have a volunteer army now, it's also the fact that our sort of way of fighting war has become much more technical and much more removed. We're involved in dozens of countries now, and we've got sort of small special forces, you know, the, the sort of mass movements of people, not even on a World War II scale, but even on the I just watched We Were Soldiers last night, just the idea of putting hundreds of folks in to take some territory. That like that approach to war is over. That's not something that we do anymore. And the national security bureaucracy, I think, was taught by Nixon that as long as the American people don't have real skin in the game, as long as they don't have U.S. boys dying, nobody gives a shit, you know? And, and I'm not to say that there weren't U.S. soldiers dying in, in Vietnam, sorry, in Iraq and Afghanistan. There absolutely have been, and it's, it's a tragedy. But if you look at the actual numbers, even at the height, even at the worst days in 2006, 2007, I mean, this is a, is a, is a tiny, tiny amount of people compared to Vietnam or Korea or World War II. And compared uh, to the casualties on the other side and among the civilian populations. Absolutely. And that's, and that, that's pretty fundamentally perhaps even illustrated by uh, this program, Americans just don't care about, just don't care. And, and, and yeah, Nixon, Nixon dramatically accelerated the civilian death, expanded the war to both Cambodia and Laos. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So expanded the war to neighboring countries, you know, dramatically stepped up, you know, millions of pounds of bombs being dropped. And uh, the American people were like, yeah, well, Johnny's not getting drafted to die so much anymore. So the kind of whole protest movement just kind of petered out. This is actually, this is another, well, I don't know if it's a lesson we learned, but it's certainly a lesson from the Vietnam War, that Vietnam, we tried it in Korea, we realized very quickly, at least for the military guys on the ground, that it wasn't working out, and we kind of cut it out. Vietnam was the first time, I think, that we tried to fight a fully technical war, a fully technological war. We didn't want to commit anything like the number of troops it would have taken to secure areas and to actually... I don't know, liberate, whatever. What we tried to do was use our machine prowess, our industrial prowess to win a war. So we ended up doing stuff like the bombing under Nixon, which was almost entirely indiscriminate uh, because as long as you flew the B-52s really, really high, nobody could shoot them down. So just drop the bombs from up there, right? Nobody's in danger. But even in the early years of the war, even before we committed troops, we'd started working with the Vietnamese military to set up free fire zones. So between our supposedly safe villages, we just 
blow away trails and villages and whatever else. And as long as Americans weren't dying, that was what we were going to do. And the natural outgrowth of that strategy right now is indiscriminate drone strikes. Don't even declare war. Not that we declared war in Vietnam either, but don't even mention that we have a war going on in the United States people. You know, just blow people away with drones. And that, that's the, the, the sort of failure of that approach is always interesting, but it, it, it does actually succeed in, in its goal of less American, fewer, sorry, fewer American casualties. I was just reading in this book, Shadows of the American Century by Alfred W. McCoy. Really fun, really interesting sort of collection of stuff. But he talks about the first like fully electronic battleground and how there were certain there were elements. I think perhaps that was exactly what we were just talking about. There were certain elements of the Ho Chi Minh Trail that even before the user interfaces we know were supposedly sort of automatically and, and guarded by computers and sensors and this, that and the other thing. It was a complete failure. And also, I think, of, of course, Rumsfeld famously thought he could take and hold Iraq with a fraction of as many soldiers as were used just to kick Saddam Hussein out of Iraq. And while that amount of soldiers could very effectively take and destroy Iraq, it was completely incapable of actually garrisoning the country. And it was by, only by piling in the soldiers that we got to like something that you could almost call success. And it's, it's sort of fascinating, these, these ways that these clever ideas that rarely work, but they do accomplish that goal of fewer American casualties. And if you can insulate war from actual costs and casualties, they've demonstrated that they can have a blank check from the American people. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing there, too, is that a lot of the guys at the end of the Vietnam War felt that the public relations battle is what caused them to lose the war. They had this idea that right at the end, we were really just a couple months from winning, which was as true in 73 as it was in 65, which is to say it was never true. But the idea of shielding the American people from the realities of war was to win the war. Whereas nowadays, it's shielding the reality from the American people so that the war can go on, but really with no definite endpoint for any of our conflicts. It's just to allow it to continue. Yeah. I don't know if you, you get to this later, but should, can we just talk about that sort of ladder of escalation? Sure. Um, is it now a good, good time to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something that when you or I read the news, and we see something like, oh, there's a whole, just, just a bunch of U.S. soldiers acting as advisors on the ground in Africa. That sets off these incredible red flags for us, because that's, that's how Vietnam started. That's, in a very different sense, like different bureaucracies, that's actually how I see this conflict in Syria starting. And yes, Iraq was a very different approach in that we sort of switched completely. But if you look at the way our interactions in Iraq have gone with Iraqi Kurdistan, for example, you have just this, this ladder of acceleration that we really love in the United States to associate these terrible wars with individual people. Vietnam, to a high degree, is still Johnson's war or Nixon's war. It, it's, it's, and we don't look at the bureaucracy. We don't look at the incentives of the, the sort of, you know, Sean Hannity would call it the deep state, Ben Rhodes, uh, Obama's, uh, I don't know, speechwriter slash advisor or whatnot, called it the blob. We, we, we really want it to be about a president. We want Iraq to be about Bush's mistake. But it's not. It's, it's, there's different approaches in Republican and Democratic administrations. You know, in a Democratic administration, it's more about oh, the responsibility to protect. And look, we're just doing, we're just doing what's right. 
by funneling billions of dollars to jihadist uh, rebels in Syria versus, you know, the more muscular Bush or I don't even know how to characterize what Trump is doing. But it's, it's, it's all in the same direction. It's a ladder of escalation. And when you hear something like, ooh, advisors, you should be terrified because that's, I mean, I think I'd, I, you'd be able to speak to this better, but I think that the, our soldiers in Vietnam were known as advisors up until two years before they were taken out of there, right? No, 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 no. Advisors up to 65. Um, I mean, there were, there were always advisors on the ground, but the idea is up until 65, we weren't allowed to engage the Viet Cong or the NVA in combat. We were just embedded with the South Vietnamese Army, the Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Of course, by 1965, we had tens of thousands of advisors on the ground, and they'd fired shots in anger for years by that point. Um, so, mm-hmm. so, yeah, and it was like, and the first U.S. soldiers were dying in the what the 50s or the early 60s. Uh, the first American soldier to die in Vietnam dies in I think 46. The uh, Viet Minh they accidentally shoot him because they thought he was a Frenchman riding in an open top jeep. And uh, was it you who was making the point that? Oh, no, actually, I think it was this book that was. The French effort in Vietnam was largely U.S. supported. After like 51 or so, yeah. By the end of the war, we were paying for something like 85% of their entire war effort. Yeah. And so it, it's just the whole Vietnam experience, which I hope we're, we're expressing well, is, is really worth delving into because it, it just it provides the model of something that we've set up a horrifying number of franchises with that. We're talking about advisors and it's it is something that i can't find a book on this i can barely find an article on this you folks who follow the news might have been might have heard that four i think it was last fall at some point four u.s special forces soldiers were killed in niger not nigeria in niger i mean this is a country that u.s senators you know couldn't find on a map and didn't know we had soldiers in and we now have i think africom the Africa Command was set up in 2008 or so, and we now have soldiers in, I don't know, half the countries of Africa, and they're all acting in this very amorphous advisor capacity. So every single one of those, I'm actually a little bit optimistic on the Middle East. I think that much like Latin America in the 80s, we may sort of move on from the nightmare in the Middle East in the next decade or so. I mean, things, you know, you could almost... I mean, gosh, Iraq is almost looking positive today, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, this is very hopeful. I'm a natural optimist. But it's not like this dynamic will go away. We will just move on somewhere else. And we're already setting up these these ladders of escalation in literally dozens of African countries. What's kind of crazy is that, and I had believed the approach that, okay, you know, we're, we're just training and advising because that's a big part of the military industrial complex. You know, you can't just sell a million dollar battle tank to Niger. You know, you need to have folks and it's usually U.S. forces doing the sales work and training folks. You know, so that was sort of how I'd seen this advisor thing, which is very consciously the way that it's pitched. Mm-hmm. Yet in Niger, we had four of these special forces advisors in a pitched battle with hundreds of militants. And I mean, we just have no idea what's going on. In, you and, know, in, in, in Niger and other countries, you also have these, you know, pretty debatably worthwhile folks that were even, you know, even John and I have no idea about the, the details of the Niger strongman's thing. So it's very easy. And now that these sort of the bond has been loosed between the boundaries getting 
you know, shaker and shaker between advisor and, okay, you're just going to lead our forces in battle. So like what, you know, was it ISIS in Niger or was it folks who just don't agree with the strongman who Mm -hmm. the strongman has chosen to portray as ISIS people? It's incredibly, it's it's a very slippery slope and we're on it in 30 30 odd countries. And the, the thing that doesn't, the thing that doesn't worry me as much is stuff like Niger, because there are guys in the Pentagon and to a lesser extent guys in the uh, State Department who want to who want to move pieces around on the global chessboard, who are fascinated with the idea that, well, we put a couple of guys here, we put a couple of guys here, we have this regime, we have that regime, we can pit them against one another. None of that worries me in a geopolitical sense. It worries me in the sense that we're helping to murder more people than may have been murdered otherwise. That's terrible. But what worries me is when we know about it. You'd think that's counterintuitive, right? I should worry when we don't know about it. But the problem is, well, take, for example, Vietnam. The reason Vietnam escalates is because the U.S. government continues to sell the South Vietnamese regime to the U.S. people. So people in the U.S. become invested in the idea that there are these democratic Vietnamese people who need our help. And it becomes more and more difficult for us to de-escalate what's going on or to get out entirely. So we end up escalating because we only really know one way to do this. And the way that I think about this is that you have old style imperialism, you know, British imperialism. So when the British support, say the British were supporting ZM in Vietnam, the British don't have to pretend that he's a Democrat. They don't have to pretend that he's a good guy. He's just their guy. The way that we always hear Nixon and LBJ in their private White House conversations saying he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch, you know, but they can't sell that to the public. The American public doesn't accept the idea that he's our guy and he's a bastard, but he's at least our guy. So to the American people, anyone we're supporting has to be a Democrat, has to be a hero, has to be the champion of their people. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I disagree with that. Actually. But what I'm, but no, no, no. But think, think about this. Obama wants to support the Syrian Democratic forces. Well, they're not, they're not a ragtag. I mean, they're not a bunch of different groups of jihadists who are just barely on our side versus their side. They're not a bunch of unreliable people. They're not a bunch of guys in the desert. They're Democrats. They're the Syrian Democratic forces. They deserve our American help. I'm saying the idea is we can only ever sell these conflicts as fights of democracy against something else, whether it's communism or terrorism or dictators or whatever. So the moment one of these engagements with U.S. special forces or advisors rises to the level of public attention, it suddenly becomes much harder to get those guys out and it becomes much easier to put more guys on the ground. You see what I'm saying? I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I'd say... I probably disagree with that i think that yeah i'd say i disagree with that because i just think about all those places all those cold war regimes where we're supporting legitimate animals and it was only you know from indonesia to the philippines to all of latin america i mean i think we're, we might be confusing two questions just sort of the troops on the ground and it, it's it's whenever sunlight was rigorously placed on those guys you know actually usually after uh, the cold war they were allowed to fall. Um, and I think it's when we're, I think it's when it's hidden, when it's a question of attention and, you know, the U.S. public individuals just aren't paying any attention, that I think more more damaging things can happen. And while obviously an, an incredible amount, I think this is something we try to get to, is like, while an incredible amount of attention is, and both of us do this, is placed on Vietnam and Cambodia in the 70s or mm-hmm. the Middle East today, it's also worth paying attention to what's happening in all of the other countries. And I think that there's a lot of shady stuff that obviously in terms of dictator support, 
happening during the Cold War and is also now happening, you know, I call it dictator support. Who knows? Nobody really knows. Nobody's even written a freaking book on the U.S. military in, in Africa since 2008. Or, and there, aren't, there isn't that much coverage. So yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think I quite follow. Take this for example. Why is it nowadays that we have so much trouble abandoning Saudi Arabia, even though that relationship's not really doing anything for us anymore? Because a very conscious public relations effort that hides the ball. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. What, what happened on, on the behalf of the South Vietnamese regime was a very conscious public relations effort on the part of the South Vietnamese and on the part of the U.S. government. Why were we able to send millions and billions of dollars to genocidal regimes in Guatemala? Well, because the U.S. government very consciously created great press for every new dictator as they arrived. Why is it that we think that the Saudis are doing good stuff in Yemen versus the Iranians? Because we have a propaganda regime working on behalf of the Saudis. Just from my own work, I think that it's anybody who becomes actually aware of Saudi Arabia and what it is, hates it and wants to wants well, that's, to fight against it. Exactly, exactly. And anybody who went to South Vietnam and actually palled around for a little while found out that the South Vietnamese regime was rotten. But that doesn't speak to the great majority of people here in the United States who've been lapping up propaganda for the, you know, their entire lives. I think correcting that propaganda is a worthwhile... Yeah, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying not that we shouldn't talk about advisors in other countries. I'm saying I get worried when the U.S. government starts talking about advisors in other countries. Because that, to me, reads as a lead up to an escalation. Yeah, not when Mother Jones publishes something about four guys dying in Niger... But when Donald Trump gets up during the State of the Union and talks about how they were heroes and we need to commit to the same struggle or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Cool. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, actually, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about here because I'm not particularly well-versed, but just because of my liberal inclinations and especially an already rosy view of the Obama administration that's starting to develop in my head, uh, I think pretty much purely as contrast to what's going on right now, in terms of selling an idea that's not the real idea to the U.S. people in order to facilitate a conflict. What do you think about Obama? About what little he did in Syria? About what he did in uh, uh, Libya? Kill me. Well, I, I think Libya was, yeah, kill me is the appropriate uh, response there. I think the way that I look at Obama is the more that I look at his Iran deal effort, mm -hmm. the more heroic I find that particular thing. I think that is extraordinary. And I think that people should actually recognize, I mean, it, it's, it's now likely to fail, but that was an extraordinary individual effort. Because if you look into the sort of the background of that, you're like, maybe he had a couple people who saw things the same way that he put in place. But the instincts of his entire political party, Washington, D.C., were like, no, don't do this. Don't do this. We, we need Iran as this bad guy. So that, like I said, the more I look at it, uh, I was always an Obama critic. The more I look at it, the more impressed I am with that particular, because that is honestly the only thing I can point to. Actually, Trump's end of the CIA funding of uh, Syrian rebels is very impressive. But obviously now he's about to take down Assad himself. Well, anyway, we'll get into that towards the end. But you know, the, uh, uh, in terms of a sustained effort by a president to sustained incredibly complex with a lot of moving pieces effort by a sitting president to shut down an element of the military industrial complex i can't think of anything between that 
And Eisenhower's Eisenhower's final address, where he popularized the concept of military-industrial complex, I can't think of anything between Eisenhower and Obama's effort against the military-industrial complex that was that nothing. There's nothing from president in between. So that is heroic. That is impressive as hell. And unfortunately, I, I mean, if I'm wrong here, but something that was sold on its merits. Yeah. That is. Yeah. This, this is what it is. There was there was no, as far as I know, no lying involved. No, I mean, Fox News would tell you different, but no, it's an extraordinary, amazing effort. That said, because he's a U.S. president, and I need to do a video, I mean, U.S. presidents are not that powerful. That's which makes what Obama did with Iran so much more impressive. In order to do that, he had to sign on to a whole range of horseshit. Yemen is a fucking nightmare. I talk about it a lot, and that's a hell of a lot more on Obama than it is on Trump. I mean, yeah, you can talk about like details of this, that, and the other fucking thing, but it's Obama and his administration that committed us to the horror show in Yemen. It's Obama and his administration. Looking at it from what little I've looked at the planning and like rolling up to it, I think Obama was probably digging in his heels and keeping it from happening, but who fucking cares? Syria is still on him. Um, mm -hmm. that, that is that nightmare. I've done a couple of videos on the channel, like talking about how, you know, we have this the way that it's pitched to us in the US, like, oh, it was the Russians who made everything terrible. Well, no, actually, if you look at like refugee flows and casualty numbers, when the Russians got involved in 2015, I believe it was the fall of 2015, these numbers did double. But if you go back two years from what's now been acknowledged and come out in the New York Times that the United States put a billion dollars. This is the largest CIA program ever, I believe. And that's not just in terms of inflation. When you look at CIA programs, it's people doing skullduggery stuff. And, you know, $100 million there, $10 million there, even at the height of the Cold War. The CIA itself put a billion dollars in to funding Syrian rebels against Assad and coordinated billions more from the Gulfy countries. We created the war in Syria. Yes, in 2015, when the Russians got in, the, there was a doubling in casualties and refugee flows. In 2013, which is sort of, we were definitely involved before, but for as far as like rigorously documented New York Times articles talking about CIA programs, from mid-2013, we started this multi-billion dollar program of arming rebels and whatnot. From that point on, Casualty and refugee flows from Syria, as unreliable as they, those are, we do know that they went up by a factor of 10. So like this horrible, horrible Russia involvement did double casualties and now seems to be ending the war unless Trump does his thing. The U.S. intervention basically meant that 10 times more people died in Syria. So, yeah, there's that uh, that's on Obama. There's Libya that's on Obama. Once again, you know, Obama and once again, he is a hero with the Iran deal, but he did that. Um, he destroyed. And this sort of myth that he was leading from behind I'd, about the Libya thing, like it was U.S. folks who did uh, the French and the British, you know, were supposedly leading that. Uh, no, like they got to go in and bomb things after the U.S. planes and forces mm -hmm. destroyed the anti-aircraft stuff the night before. I mean, that was once again, completely a U.S. project. And that happened under Obama. And, and uh and it's also that in particular really freaking gets to me because I think a lot of the critiques, there are valid critiques of Russia and China. Well, why are Russia and China always trying to block stuff in the Security Council when it comes to humanitarian stuff? Well, in Libya, they didn't. 
in Libya, mostly because Gaddafi was such a universally loathed figure. But in Libya, they're like, you know what? Okay, we're going to let you do this, NATO. We're going to let you do this to show us what and what a humanitarian intervention is going to be like. Don't don't overthrow him. Don't overthrow him. Whatever you do, don't overthrow him. But you can save Benghazi. Save Benghazi. Do this humanitarian thing you've been talking about for so long. And we did that. And then we rolled across the country. And then Gaddafi ended up, you know, murdered by a gang of people on the street. And it was videotaped and sent everywhere. So if you wonder why Russia and China refused to participate in any Security Council UN stuff on, you know, on humanitarian issues, that's why. They tried it in Libya and we fucked them. That's on Obama. There's also in Yemen, there's the murder of uh, almost an entire family of American citizens. Yes, Anwar al-Awlaki is a bad dude, but the idea that he can be murdered without due process is a horrific precedent that will be used by presidents to come. Also, not as up on this as it should be, but my understanding is that his teenage son was also murdered in a separate strike, yeah. and possibly his daughter as well. Now, I haven't, I haven't followed up on that in de- detail. But yeah, that's, that's all Obama too. So no, I'm not a fan of uh, Obama's general foreign policy legacy. I do think he tried to do one heroic thing. And this isn't like a, you know, an anti-Obama thing. This is what a U.S. president, you know, Mother, of course, Mother Teresa is problematic, but Mother Teresa could be elected president of the United States and she will have that much blood on her hands. But this idea that Obama, you know, somehow, like he did, he really tried with the Iran deal. And that was a really important thing to do. And it was heroic and it was impressive. But he's on the same path to hell as any other U.S. president. Yeah. Well, so a couple of things to talk about there. The, the first is kind of that last that last thing you were talking about, which is that uh, something that we fail to realize in the United States is that any incoming U.S. president, especially if he didn't grow up in the State Department, which zero percent of presidents, has no experience dealing with the military, has no experience dealing with the intelligence agencies, dealing with these people who tell them we know. We've been doing this for 30 years. We know what we need to do. And if you want to look at sort of that arc through the Obama presidency, I think, I think targeted drone strikes and assassinations and the way they spike early on and then draw down is him finally developing the confidence to tell these dudes in the CIA, yeah, no, no, no more. I finally understand my own foreign policy role. And maybe, maybe the culmination of that is the, uh, is the Iran deal. The finally the ability to say, I know what's going on. And I can oppose you and sell my own agenda. But the other thing here is, is somebody might reasonably ask us, because I'm pretty much in agreement with everything you just said. Somebody might reasonably ask us, all right, so Syria is going on. It's 2010, 2011. It's horrible. It seems like we ought to do something. Now, there's, there's a name for this in international relations, and it's called, it's called the duty to protect. And it's part of this literature that grew up after the end of the Cold War that asks, all right, we're the only guy in the scene what do we do with that? There, you know, there has to be some duty involved with being the strongest dude on the scene. So what do we do? And one of the big things that shaped our thinking around duty to protect was the genocide that went on in Rwanda. Because we had guys on the ground who were UN forces that sat by and did nothing as the Rwandan genocide went, went on. And there's, there's a documentary I had to watch like four times in school, which is pretty heart-wrenching. But, That's interesting. Um, you had to watch that four times in school. Yeah, a ton. A ton, in, man. In high school. No, no, no. In, in college. Yeah, Georgetown. No, no. Well, actually, yeah. Georgetown, the, the home of few, for, uh, future 
foreign service officers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're really, yeah, yeah. really pushing that duty to protect thing pretty hard, huh? Well, I mean, I think I think based on just the quality of the professors, and not all professors at that school, the, the professors I happen to have uh, that talked about that, they were talking about the attraction and the dangers of duty to protect. So, yeah, you know, it, it may be incumbent upon the strongest actor in the world to, to do something about terrible situations that are going on. But then once you've decided that, and I, I'm, I think I'm on this side, I think I'm on this side of duty to protect, that there is some duty when you see something horrible going on, that national sovereignty isn't the be all and end all of international relations. But you then ask me, what should we have done in Syria when there was still time to do something? And I was one of those people. I was one of those people that wanted to do something. Maya Jabali, who's now a much, much more successful uh, journalist than I, than I ever have been or ever will be, who writes for AFP out of Beirut, she and I, our last year of college, we were talking about starting you know, the second incarnation of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and signing up you know, hundreds of Americans to go fight in the Syrian war. It's funny. That is a very 22-year-old thing to do. Yeah. I was that age. Uh-huh. Uh, I the big issue was what Russia was doing to Chechnya. So this is 2000, 2000, 2002. I have a website that's long been taken down. And I was like, yeah, I was like, what the what the what what the world needs now is a Lincoln brigade for Chechnya, which, you know, is horrifying. Which to a- anybody who doesn't know the Second Spanish Republic in 1936 one of its generals named Francisco Franco, who was with the army in Morocco, raised a fascist rebellion. The Spanish Civil War raged for four years. The Western democracies provided no aid because there were too many socialists and communists in the Spanish Republican government. And what they ended up sending instead, unofficially, part of the citizens, were brigades of international fighters who signed up to go fight for the Spanish Republic. And the most famous of those was the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, which came from and this included folks like George Orwell, Ernest Hemingway. This is where from whom the, for whom the bell tolls, I believe, is uh-huh. about. Yeah, and homage to Catalonia. Homage to Catalonia, Orwell's book, and uh, for whom the bell tolls is tremendously <laughs> significant. I think that all of our parents would know what the Lincoln Brigade was, or or you know would, would or maybe our grandparents at this point. Um, but uh, that, I mean, we could also go down the uh, you know the foreign fighters in Syria. Actually, or uh, I would say. Yeah, they're uh, fighting the that, exactly. brigade, yeah. but but that's that's problematic. Of course, we would have been fighting on the side of truth and justice. Right? Obviously, that's the difference. But um, any, anyway, my point is, I was one of those people that wanted to do something, right? Uh, and at the time, I probably would have wanted just some sort of military intervention, right? That's what I was looking for. But I think now, a little bit of perspective, and especially perspective on the way things worked in Vietnam, I think the duty to protect exists. But I think maybe the way to address it is you take a moment, like a. 2011, 2012 in Syria, when it's when it's just kicking off. I think what you have at that moment is not a speech from the president, not one speech, but if you're if you're entertaining even the idea of of mounting some sort of operation with the duty to protect, it's got to be a months long conversation with the American people. What is it that we're willing to commit to this? What do we think is right? What's going to work? Because we've seen time and again that discussing that within the circles of power and acting on it is a recipe for disaster. Obama actually did that in 2013, though, if you recall. Remember, he went to Congress and, you know, this, that and the other thing. And Congress said no. And, and I'm glad. I mean, as, as angry as I am about that CIA program that was allowed to go forward, I'm very glad we didn't get involved. Uh, yeah, in yeah. Because Except- the idea that we weren't involved in Syria back then is fucking nuts. We were the main reason the place was disintegrating. Yeah, which is uh, what I'm saying. 
that there was this conversation in 2013, but that didn't prevent any of the CIA programs from going forward. It didn't prevent any of the funding from going forward. Because, you know, in my ideal world, Obama comes to the people and says, look, look, we want to support these guys. Bashar al-Assad is obviously a monster. It's not great that people are getting killed. But look, here's the deal. If we give billions of dollars to these rebels, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of more people are going to die. That is the cost of us helping this out. Is that the cost that we want to bear? Is that the moral burden that we as the United States want to bear as part of the duty to protect? I mean, that's the honest conversation that's never going to happen because we stopped talking to the American public in 1952. Well, I think we, I mean, the question of lying and poly, you know, what was the, what's that famous Philip Larkin poem? It's like, sex was invented in 1963 or something like that. No, it's like lying in politics did not begin with Vietnam. But yes, it certainly took a whole new form and a new, uh, new, new approach. With the duty to protect, I'm tremendously skeptical of the duty to protect and I would say very much against it. But I would say that if we do have, if we can ever get to a point where the United Nations, everybody in the United Nations, it's important to remember, as we had in Libya, with China and Russia, they were like, yes, okay, we're convinced, go do it. Like, if we have that, the entire world on board, in that case, if there's something so egregious, which I would imagine Rwanda in 94, mm-hmm. you know, might have might have gotten there, that even China and Russia are like, yeah, that's fucked up. Let's go deal with that. Then yes, in that case, I would be willing to endorse a duty to protect type operation. Failing that, no way. The United States has proved itself over and over again to be completely incapable of making these judgments in any kind of any kind of rational way. Another thing about that Rwanda stuff, I need to look into this more. But my understanding is not just that the Tutsi Hutu thing was a creation of outside influence during the Belgian, the sort of I think it was Belgian or French colonial period, but also the the sort of the run up. I need to read into this further, but the run up to the actual genocide involved a lot of French manipulation throughout the 80s and 90s. So actually, Rwanda isn't a great case for foreign intervention. It's a great case for foreigners staying out because it may have actually started the Rwanda genocide. I don't I haven't read enough about that to back that up with any with any sincerity, but I do intend to at some point. Also, the the whole humanitarian intervention thing, I did a video about this years ago called uh, Why Humanitarian Intervention is Dumb. The first, you know what, the first big human rights persecuted group that was seen by the international community of the great powers worth as worth protecting was? Do you know, do you know who those were? Uh, the Greeks, maybe? Eggs fucking exactly. It was the Armenian and Greek minorities of the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century. So, yeah, um, not sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure most of our publics know how that went. There are no more Greeks or Armenians in the territory of the Ottoman Empire. You've heard of the term Armenian genocide. So that's generally what happens to the beneficiaries of our duty to protect. Uh, because as in that case, of course, the French and Russian championing of the, the religious minorities of the Ottoman Empire were always about political aims just as our championing of the persecuted in Syria was always about political aims and the fact that Syria was one of the few countries that did not participate in our sort of liberal world order. So, But the, the thing about it, the thing about it, and from a, my more, you know, my, my, my great age now of uh, 27 and 10 days, talking about duty to protect, 
I think there's a much more effective method of intervention than, than we've literally ever used before in the history of the United States that could be deployed in virtually every one of these situations. And that is an outgrowth of our position as the world's greatest economic power, you know, for however long that lasts, which is that our first thought is always, well, who are going to blow up? Is it going to be free fly zones? Is it going to be targeted bombings? Is it going to be special forces guys? You're never going to get rid of that element of it because uh, obsessed with all that stuff. But um, say our approach into Syria is going to be too prompt, right? We're going to fund the rebels. And then the only ethical, natural partner of that would be to accept millions of refugees. That is that our strategy with Bashar al-Assad is we're literally going to depopulate the areas that rebels control. We're going to take everyone. Because that's, that's, the, that's the only, you know, if you want to look at effective intervention in Rwanda, you're not going to be able to, with foreign guns, stop whatever's going on in those days in 94. But what you could do is just let every one of those people who wants to get out, get out. It's insane that the United States takes such a small proportion of the world's refugee population when it has such a large role in creating that same refugee population. Now, a lot of people don't like that, but I'm saying if we're going to get involved in other countries, the only ethical thing to partner with that is that we got to take everybody that we end up fucking their lives up of. It's not a great sentence. Yeah, so we're, so we're facilitating ethnic cleansing for folks? Is that... Uh, we should, I'm, we should, I'm saying we once we've begun people. to facilitate it, then we need to take the people who need to get out. Well, but that's the, 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 I don't know. I, I don't think any of the, these processes work quite as quickly. No, obviously not. I'm talking about ideal worlds here. Well, the, the thing is, and I talk about this a lot, is we actually do have a very effective strategy and battery of tools to use against nasty dictators who are, and we've used it over and over and over again. You can bribe them. Uh, we were already well on our way towards the same result in Syria. I mean, Bashar Assad is the heir, son and heir of Hafez Assad. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I'm getting that appropriately, who is like a legitimate this is circa 2010, legitimate horror show of a guy. I mean, you know, you know flattened Hama, you know, tr true nightmare. Bashar, while he wasn't as liberalizing as quickly as everyone had hoped and had the serious burden of the United States invading the country next door in his like year two of his leadership, was really super freaking interested. I mean, just look at the way this guy presents himself visually. Oh, you know, Hafez Assad, sometimes in a suit, sometimes in a uniform. Bashar Assad, I haven't, I mean, there's got to, maybe there's a picture floating around somewhere of this guy in a uniform, but he's always in a suit, speaks fluent English, even today is eager to be interviewed by any U.S. journalist who wants to go and come in and ask him any question in English. That's, it was fascinating. Uh, there's somebody in the YouTube comments linked me to one of those. And I was like, what? This is from 2018? Like Assad is talking to, or it's 2017? Assad is happily talking to Newsweek? I wonder why they didn't show up on Fox News. But yeah, there's a standard, if you look at Eastern Europe, Latin America, all of our Asian tiger buddies, standard approach. You bribe them. You, 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 you give them cash and prizes. You suck them into the world system. And pretty soon, you've got a large enough constituency in that country that wants to get rid of him. And whether getting rid of that guy means he goes to a you know pleasant retirement Chilean countryside um, and might come back on him 10, 20 years later, or uh, if he just had a luxury apartment in Moscow. You know, it, it would have been a good deal for the Assad family and it would have been a much and better deal for the Syrian people. And it's what we did in all of communist Eastern Europe, all of Latin America, all of the Asian tiger folks. I mean, people don't quite realize that Indonesia, South Korea, the year I was born, 1979, Indonesia, South Korea, Taiwan, 
the Philippines, all of these successful, relatively successful democratic places had were ruled by monsters in 1979 folks that make Assad, even, you know, the, the Suharto, the Indonesia guy, even makes Assad circa 2016 after the Syrian war look like a pussycat. And yeah. we dealt with these guys very straightforwardly. You, you just make their people rich, you make them rich, and they fade away. That's how you actually change regimes. That's how you actually protect and lift people up. And it's very straightforward. And the U.S. has actually been pretty good at it. Unfortunately, we have munitions industries. Yeah. Um, so pause. Um, I'm going to go to the bathroom and get a cup of coffee. In the meantime, I think you ought to take a look at the chat unless you're going to do the same thing that I'm going to do. And then regarding somebody's comment here, where they asked if we ever talked about Vietnam at all, right after I get back, we're getting back to the outline because we got two things we're going to cover that are both directly applicable to Syria or what we might do in Syria in the next coming weeks. And then we're going to... So. Do questions and stuff. Okay. And right now, I will uh, dive into the chat. Has anybody got a question for me? There's a bit of a delay here. So uh, I'm going to go through this chat. It is interesting that it does seem that we're not talking about Vietnam as perhaps we had promised. But it's, it's I think, a sign of just how entwined all these issues are. It's a... History is repeating itself in a very, very direct way. I mean, it's the same... You look at the, the start of the Vietnam War, or at least not the start, certainly not the start, just like uh, Bush wasn't the start of the Iraq War, but the, the acceleration of the Vietnam War came with the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was now acknowledged to be an almost completely fabricated incident that allowed Johnson to go to the U.S. Congress and get the authorization for a tremendous leap in troop figures. This is very similar to the WMD issue in Iraq. So these things go in cycles, and that's why it's so important to pay attention to this stuff. Have we got a question? America is capitalism on steroids. Well, yes, thank you. I, I, I tend to agree with that. Could Vietnam have been won by money bombing rather than bomb bombing? That is a very interesting question. And I think we had that opportunity. We talked about that earlier with Harry Truman at the end of World War II. We had that opportunity to work with Ho Chi Minh because we had helped. We had helped them boot the Japanese out of Vietnam. Instead, we made the choice to go with, uh, I guess, a different kind of money choice to prop up remnants of the French empire. So yeah, the, the, it wasn't as direct. We weren't quite as we were, but uh, we still wanted to help France preserve its pretensions to empire at that point, even though we were sort of at that point. This sort of money bombing, this ability to really just bribe dictators out of existence, I think really sort of came after 1989. And I think that's sort of the genesis of the, the democratic revolution that people talk about. Thoughts on the recent Syrian development, the Trumps plan to bomb Syria again. Uh, we will definitely get to that by the end, Max Payne, I assure you. After the documents were leaked, was there any laws passed so that another Vietnam does not happen? <laughs> Well, uh, actually, the War Powers Act was yeah. a direct response to what happened in Vietnam because LBJ prosecuted the entire war and later Nixon uh, without any declaration of war. He just had the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which was likewise extracted because of some uh, skullduggery. Problem being that the War Powers Act, we're operating under it right now. There's a, there's a resolution under the War Powers Act that allows the U.S. government to prosecute war anywhere as long as it somehow has to do with terrorism. Which is why Yemen is kind of low-hanging fruit, because unlike most of the rest of the conflicts, 
I mean, we're actually working with Al-Qaeda there. So that's why uh, Sanders and Mike Lee, who's a Republican, and Chris Murphy, who's a Democrat, got pretty close a couple of weeks back in pushing a sort of war powers orient. Um, I may be, I may be uh, crossing some legal lines here, but in terms of uh, maybe confusing some issues. But the, I believe it was pretty directly related to the War Powers Act and the authorization for the use of military force. So they introduced a resolution in the Senate that I think lost by 50, you know, by five or 10 votes, trying to get the U.S. out of Yemen. And if that, if that had succeeded, the underlying reason for that would have been the War Powers Act, which came about in the 70s. All right. Do we have any more directly Vietnam-related questions? Oh, Jesus. Could the Vietnam conflict have been war one with nuclear weapons? It depends on what you mean by one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you wanted to just kill everyone in North Vietnam, well, yes, you can kill people with nuclear weapons, certainly. Yeah. Or everyone in North Vietnam and, what, a lot of southern China? Yeah, oh, just the whole region, yeah. Blow away yeah. the entire French colony of Indochina, and certainly the war will be over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can, and that's, that's, that goes to a, a calculation that, yes, of course, you can definitely win wars by killing everybody. That's how they used to win wars. You take a city, you slaughter everyone, and sell them off for slavery. Not exactly. You can't really um, kind of hard to square that when your main rationale for being there is to help the Vietnamese people. Yeah. Um, doesn't quite fit with the U.S. self-image. So everybody keep, keep putting your stuff in the chat, especially non-Vietnam related questions we'll get to later. If you have in the hour and a half of this conversation so far asked a question specifically about Vietnam that we have not gotten to, please type it in again and we'll get to it like almost right now. But the next thing we had on our outline, which I think maybe we can blow away pretty quickly, is the idea of a lost war and the need to reclaim prestige here in the United States. I think, I think it's bigger than Vietnam because we didn't really win in Korea either. I think people forget about that now because the memory of Vietnam has kind of encapsulated the whole mid-century worth of conflict. And I think the way in which we lost, lost Vietnam is, is important because it was never a war we were going to be able to win on the ground. We lost we, Vietnam. We lost Vietnam a lot harder than we lost Korea. I mean, yeah, no, no, certainly. No South Korea. There's no South yeah. Vietnam. What I mean to say is that the word Vietnam was lost the second that we decided to champion a regime that didn't really exist versus North Vietnam, which was founded upon the successful resistance to the French of the Viet Minh that had massive popular support, that was led by a massively popular leader in Ho Chi Minh. And what's more, a massively popular leader who never engaged in the same kind of stuff that Stalin and Mao did. You know, a massively popular leader who didn't have to lie about what he'd done to maintain that popularity. And the second we tried to champion a South Vietnamese regime that, that was never there at all, that was the moment we lost the war. And I think because we lost it that way, there's been so much obsession with how we could have won it militarily. You know, if we just bombed a little bit more, if we just bombed more in the north, if we've invaded the north, if we'd eliminated those zones in Cambodia... Because there was never a way to win militarily, except as Loga Cool Extreme pointed out, killing everyone in the whole region, what it's created is this complex that's gone on till today, that if we could just fight the war the right way, these wars that shouldn't be fought at all. You know, if we could have just fought Iraq differently in some way, it wouldn't have turned out the way it did. When really the question that we've refused to address since Vietnam is, don't why get into these wars in the first place. Yeah, why were we there? And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's seductive. I mean, I think about I often think about like, well, you know, what if Rumsfeld hadn't fired the entire Iraqi army? You know, what if what if we hadn't, you know, sent two million guys with guns 
you know, made, made two million unemployed guns with two million unemployed people with guns. You know, maybe things would have gone a little bit better. But yeah, it, it, I think that's a great way of avoiding the central question, which is, was there a point to any of this in the first place? Yeah, there was not. And this is this is something that I mean, I mean, is seriously dominant in the culture. Probably, well, at least all of our audience that's in the U.S. knows that last fall, Ken Burns produced a ten-part series on Vietnam. I didn't expect it to be very good because Ken, Bur Ken Burns has kind of a rosy view of American history. Totally lived up to that. Uh, this thesis statement of the very first episode is something like, uh, "Everybody had good intentions. It, this <laughs> war was an accident," and then never addresses the question of why we got there in the first place again. And what he does, like everybody else who talks about the war, is about how we fought it. The question isn't how we fought it or how we could have fought it better. I mean, once you're in, maybe, maybe, you know, once we've destroyed the Iraqi state and killed Saddam Hussein, yeah, maybe there's questions at that point because we can't go back in time about, yeah, don't fire the army, you know, create a better coalition or whatever. But and the I, question I, we need to be focused on to avoid another Iraq is don't do it in the first place. How do we see the thing we shouldn't do? And I think what, why history is so important here is I think the standard objection to someone who looks at Iraq in 2003 and was like, this guy's horrible. He gassed his people. Da, 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 da. It's like, yeah, but why, who created Saddam Hussein? Who created, like, that's the thing. All of these, all of these conflicts have much deeper roots than the, the big 2003 invasion moment or the big 1964 Gulf of Tonkin. Johnson goes heavily into, into Vietnam moment. Uh, so that's like, we're trying to answer these larger questions. We're not saying that Saddam Hussein or Bashar Assad, you know, circa 2018 are good people. We're, we're asking the, the question that should be asked, which is like, how are these situations created? Because Iraq was very much created by the United States. Uh, the Iraq issue was very much created by the United States, as was the Vietnam issue. Uh, someone had asked, uh, I think it was a Vietnam question, and maybe you can, how serious was Ho Chi Minh about communism? Was it something that he always espoused, or was it something he sort of jumped in on later on when he knew he could get support against the Americans and the French, or how was that? How did that work? So Ho Chi Minh, from birth, is a nationalist. Ho Chi Minh's father is a nationalist. He participates in the first major rebellion against the French. Ho Chi Minh is born into nationalism. But until he gets to France at the end of the First World War, after sort of a world tour on working on different ships, uh, he's not any particular brand of political except for nationalist. Yeah. But what happens is he gets to France at that point, and the only party, the only party of all of the parties active at the time that espouses national liberation for the colonized people is the Socialist Party. And not just the Socialist Party, but the, the half of it that decides to join the Third Communist International. Hmm. Uh, because the French socialists, the ones who were in government, all espoused holding on to the colony of Indochina. Mm -hmm. Now, you could say at that point in the world, there was one other thing going on, which was enlightened capitalism as espoused by Woodrow Wilson and the 14 mm -hmm. points. Problem being, as much as Toe liked the Americans throughout his whole life, even up to 1966, when they were waging war on his country, the problem is Ho had done long tours up and down the U.S. eastern seaboard, and he'd already seen the way that the United States treated its own Negro population. Mm -hmm. That's a weird word to use. I've been reading a lot of books from the period. But, but the point is Ho had already seen it. The only people that he knew in the whole world who really espoused anti-colonialism were communists. And not just communists, but Marxist-Leninists out of Moscow. So he was a communist from the... Yeah. Okay. But the thing that people have pointed out is that he was never a man of theory. 
there's no little red book for Ho Chi Minh. And the only thing like it is a book of poetry he wrote while he was in prison, mm -hmm. um, which is totally apolitical. So he was always happy to follow the dictates of common turn. But what he was most concerned about was independence for Vietnam. He wasn't concerned about creating a world communist order. But yeah, he was a communist the whole life, his whole life long. Uh, and what he tried to implement in North Vietnam once he was in power there was communism. The way that you can look at it is that in China under Mao, when it looks like collective farming isn't working out, mm -hmm. they double down until millions of people have died of famine. Mm -hmm. In North Vietnam, collective farming doesn't really work out. So they dial it back and they make it sort of collective, a little bit free market. He's communist. He wants to work towards Marxist-Leninist ideas. But if they don't work out, he dials it back. Mm. There's there's almost there's almost literally nothing objectionable in like the entire life of Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> well, I, I, that that may very well be true, but it's also, I mean, as is, uh, it, it, if your entire life is spent fighting very virtuously against outside aggressors, you know, mm -hmm. you're not gonna, you know, if if Stalin's entire career was fighting against Hitler, we'd probably be have a pretty sunny impression of Stalin as well. Yeah, uh, but but my point is that in the early years of North Vietnam, they do a collective they do a collectivization movement in the the farms, and they kill a bunch of landlords. They kill like two thousand landlords, or, or mm -hmm. the number may be quite a bit higher. Like I said, I haven't gotten there in the show yet. But what I do know enough to know, when that same situation prevails in China, we never know if Mao's underlings really told him what was going on in the countryside. We never know if he took enough of an interest to ever actually find out. Mm -hmm. um, what we do know in Vietnam is that Ho Chi Minh was horrified. He fired all the guys who had instituted the collectivization effort, and he dialed it back. Oh, interesting. They, 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 they did a rectification campaign. They didn't do collectivization in Vietnam? They did. It didn't work out so hot, so then they, they dialed it back to sort of a half and half. The, uh, um, so have, we've, have we got a bit more in the, in the agenda? So if we think we've, we're pretty much done with the idea of regaining prestige, which I think we already kind of talked about in the Iraq wars, yeah, well, um, the, Persian, the Persian Gulf in 1990, 90, I still can't remember the appropriate year, that war was pitched and described as wiping away the stain of Vietnam, doing away with Vietnam syndrome. I consider myself to be a proud, continued sufferer of Vietnam War syndrome, and uh, it would be good if the rest of us were as well. All right, so that's, that's what I got. Do we have stuff from the comments here? Why is Vietnam... Okay, why is, well, I mean, we have a, why is Mattis pro-Iran deal? Uh, well, should we start with Vietnam questions, maybe? If you want to do the pro-Iran deal thing, I'm, I'm going back through all the comments right now. And okay, cool. So I'll do why is Mattis pro-Iran deal. Mattis is pro-Iran deal because he recognizes that throwing that over unilaterally would be like Trump's throwing over the climate change thing, except a million times worse. What Trump is doing here is not, I think Mattis actually is definitely an opponent of the Iran deal as signed in 2015. But what he recognizes is what Trump wants to do, which is unilaterally throw over this deal. It's not just a deal between the United States and Iran. It's a deal between the United States, Europe, China, Russia, it, it, uh, something like P plus five or six or something like that. Anyway, it's like a whole ton of countries that have signed on to this. Iran has been compliant with this thing that they signed on for. So China, Russia, especially, and even our traditional allies in Europe are like, what the fuck are you doing? So if Trump decides to not certify the Iran deal, decides to unilaterally back out, we don't just have Russia and China and Iran disagreeing with us on this. We have all of our traditional allies in Europe being, 
what the fuck? We're supposed to sell. You know, I think France has serious oil deals going forward, Airbus, and I think even Boeing want to sell, finally sell planes to Iran again. And Trump is just throwing all this over. And what people don't realize about the Iran deal was there was a run up to that, that Obama did a very good job of getting the entire world on board with sanctions against Iran. So if we, Mattis recognizes as a very anti-Iran person, that if we just throw out the deal, we don't have any levers to pull against Iran other than getting involved in another war. And as a military person and a military leader who would be sending these people to die, and as someone who knows that the challenge of fighting Iran in a war is dramatically worse, dramatically more daunting than fighting Saddam Hussein in Iraq was, he knows that getting rid of the Iran deal is insanity because we don't have any levers to use against Iran, if the rest of the world says, fuck the U.S., and we're happy to keep trading with Iran, because that's sort of the way that the oil market works. It all sort of goes away. Eddie, did you found some Vietnam questions? Yeah. All right. I, I think the one I want to take first was, uh, why was Vietnam impossible to win? There's like two or three that kind of build off this. Yeah. So I kind of said this a lot in the episode. I'm not sure if I fully explained it. But so the basic dynamic in Vietnam is that at the end of the war with the French, the Viet Minh have won. But the French have managed to keep South Vietnam relatively free of the Viet Minh, which is the group that Ho Chi Minh leads uh, and in which the Indo-Chinese Communist Party dominates. Right? So what the French do is they sign these accords in 54 that divide the country along the 17th parallel, and they set up a national election in four years or something like that. So the U.S., which is by this point sponsoring the South Vietnamese regime under Ngo Dinh Diem, decides to not let these elections happen. Why? Why don't we allow elections to happen to unite the country of Vietnam? Well, because Ho Chi Minh is popular in the entire country. The Viet Minh, because they threw out the French, are popular in the entire country. They would have won. That is, the seat of Vietnamese nationalism is in the north. It resides within the Viet Minh, which we later renamed to the Viet Cong, but they never actually changed their name, and in the person of Ho Chi Minh. So for the entire war, what we're supporting is a regime in the south that never had the popular support of anyone. Not the Southern Vietnamese, not Northern Vietnamese, not the Catholics, not anyone. Well, at the very beginning, it had the support of the Catholics, but we were supporting this ghost regime. And the reason we could never win the Vietnam War the way we were fighting it was that we, we were supporting a regime that no one else supported. So and the second that we pulled out, it was going to collapse. Is it, well, and also, wasn't there some support? Diem was able, mostly because of the incredible amount of money that he had from the United States to play with, was able to build a little bit of port until, until, well, until, uh, until uh, he became more authoritarian. We didn't like the way he was acting and we allowed his generals to assassinate him. Yeah. Uh, but the kind of support that Diem was building was dictatorial support. He was building support among generals and among foreign powers. Yeah. But, but like it's just it's just a testament to just how stupid our approach to this was. Yeah. My understanding is like what you know, Diem things were getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and then we killed Diem, and then things got exponentially worse. You know, uh -huh. sort of necessitating large numbers of U.S. soldiers. So yeah. we just had no idea what we were doing in Vietnam from the get go, just as we had no idea what we were doing in Iraq from the get go, and still don't have much of an idea today. Yeah. So the corollary to this question is, could we have won the war if we'd spent more money on it? Which somebody mentioned they, they saw in a right-wing propaganda video. 
question mark, which is what, what was the university that you mentioned? The YouTube Prager University. Prager university. I need yeah, to Prager U. It's nuts, man. They talk a lot about how we could have won the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, it was handsome. Yes. We could have won the Vietnam War. Yes. What we would have had to have done was eliminate the South Vietnamese regime, made South Vietnam an actual colony, moved hundreds of thousands of Americans there to, to I mean, moved them there, not soldiers, just mm -hmm. citizens, to populate the countryside, to take it away from the guerrillas, and maybe also eliminated the native Vietnamese population in the South. Yeah. If we'd done all that, we could have worked. Yeah, I mean, like, like it, it's this basic question. It's like, yeah, actually, you know, if the United States had decided to go full Rome in 1945 um, and basically abandon everything about the United States that was worthwhile, not just, you know, betray our principles in ways that we talk about all the time, but go full on genocidal and universal conscription and everybody just goes in and massacres everybody and uses nature. Sure, we could have taken over the whole goddamn world. We could have done Hitler easy, sure. I mean, yeah. not easy. It would have been horrific and horrible, and we could have done it. But why would you want to do that? Yeah. And that's that's the that's the yeah, of course. Which if, should be a response put, to anybody who says you can win the Vietnam War. Yeah, if you had put you know 10, 20 percent of U.S. GDP into obviously you can you can you can change those parameters. Like maybe we wouldn't have gone full on genocidal. We would have just you know we would just would have done decimation. And you know we actually we already did a lot of. Uh, extrajudicial killing in Vietnam, but we could have just sort of stepped that up a bit and we could have nuked Hanoi and we could have this, that, and the other thing. But what kind of country would we be if we had done that? And it's important to remember that as these right-wing folks don't with their sort of focus on lost cause bullshit, it's important to remember that the entire time this war was being sold as what we're doing for our Vietnamese friends and brothers. You know, the U.S. public doesn't really want to be Hitler. Shocking, you know? Even those points in U.S. history where you sort of look at our approach to Native Americans or approach to you know, African-American populations, like, yeah, like, we don't want to be the bad guy. Nobody wants to be the bad guy. So, yes, if we wanted to go full on Hitler, we could have won Vietnam. But why would we want to do that? The other thing there, too, especially not that Hitler has to worm his way into every conversation, but that in the United States is becoming more and more applicable there was this thing that existed in Weimar, Germany, after the First World War, which was called the stab in the back myth, the Dolstasse Legenda. The point is, it was a rationale used by militarists like the Nazi party to justify the creation of greater and greater military power. The idea that the war had been lost because of betrayal by politicians on the home front. And it's exactly the same narrative that guys like yeah. Victor David Hansen, Davis Hansen, are trying to sell you on the Vietnam War. And your reaction should be, that's just a lie. It's yeah. just not true. Now, no, I mean, no, it's true. But it's like, it, it, but the question is like, what, 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 what are you willing to have the country you live in be? Mm -hmm. So, so the other correlate of this question was, could Vietnam have been won by money bombing versus real bombing? Interesting. Well, I don't know about what. It, yes, several times. So, in 1945. When the United States is the power that's going to decide whether the French can recolonize Vietnam mm. or will just recognize Ho Chi Minh, who's already become president of the provisional government of Vietnam, mm -hmm. we could have said yes. And we could have had them foreign aid and included them in the sort of corollary of the Marshall Plan that we used in Japan. Done. Yep. Uh, what we could have done in 1954 was allowed a national election to go through, gave them all the money that we were going to get the South Vietnamese regime, and done. There's no Vietnam War. And it's what we ended up doing in the end. The Vietnam yep. War ended, and the Vietnamese people, as they have been several times over the last eight or nine decades, 
were incredibly magnanimous in saying, bygones are bygones, come right back in, let's trade. Yep. Um, which is exactly the situation in Vietnam right now. I've got tons of friends who have gone and visited, and they said, yeah, they want you to go see the Museum of the U.S. War because they think it's pretty shitty what you did, but they're very happy to have you, and they're the nicest people in the world. Yeah, uh, last night I watched uh, We Were Soldiers, which is pretty much the last, I think, big, well, except for Tropic Thunder, of course, big ticket uh, Vietnam War movie that came out in mm -hmm. 2002. And uh, I was sort of followed up on the bit, and it's it the the movie does a great job. Uh, yeah, I think it does a uh, on balance a great job depicting this just horrific battle, Battle of Ladrang Valley or something like that, and just the brutalization that went on. And I sort of did some Wikipediaing after the fact. And uh, in the early '90s, before diplomatic relations had been reestablished between the United States and Vietnam, uh, the the oh gosh, Colonel. Uh, well, he's now he finished up a major general or whatever, but he yeah, at the time general, but at the time, at the time he was a he was a uh, a colonel, and uh, a significant portion of his of the four or five hundred guys he led there, you know, twenty five of them went to the Vietnam, went to that battlefield, and uh, were welcomed by the Vietnamese government and met some of the guys they were fighting against. Uh, like, mm -hmm. and this was, I mean, this is when. When I mean, this is barely thirty, barely twenty-five years after the battle, and some of that I think we do kind of actually. Um, so, and I think Southeast Asia is full of. So, Ellie Loheim, the question just asked was: Southeast Asia is full of ex-U.S. expat colonies today. Cambodian cash machines spit out dollars. Are you sure we didn't win? I don't know. Actually, I think that's yes, that's true. And we, as as John pointed out earlier, we could have won like that in 1945. We could have won like that in 1954. This whole thing was a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Because as anybody who knew anything about the region in 1945 could have told you, and is very much the reason I think why the Vietnamese are so very welcoming and magnanimous today, is the Vietnamese hate China, have for thousands of years. And they see the United States as their best protection against China. So we could have spent those trillions. Like, how amazing would it have been, actually, from a geostrategic perspective, if today in 2018, China didn't just have 150 rich Japanese on one end, but they also had another Japan right below them, mm -hmm. you know? Because that's pretty much what we could have had, you know? Yeah. We could have we rebuilt Vietnam. I mean, that that oversimplifies Japan has a history of development that's very different from, mm -hmm. you know, colonial uh, abuse by France. But actually, Vietnam's already trending in that direction today. Mm -hmm. So we could have, yeah, so it could have been more like another South Korea. Yeah, um, in the South Korea, without having to partner with a pretty distasteful authoritarian in the beginning. Yeah. South Korea with a communist Democrat. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and also, I mean, gosh, Vietnam's population is... Significantly larger than Korea, South Korea. It's pretty large. I mean, I'll look it up right now. That's what we screwed up. And yes, that, I mean, that's the amazing thing is that, yeah, of course, because Vietnam, you know, as it did in 1945, 1964, 1975, really hates China. Yeah, we, we kind of won or something like that. But yeah, that could have happened a lot sooner. Um, yeah, about twice the population. Yeah. Now, this, this was an interesting question. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on it which is why are there no anti-war marches now as there were during the Vietnam War? People. We, we don't have the, the folks, the very few people that we actually put in harm's way today are there very, very voluntarily. And because, I mean, it's their job. They're chomping at the bit to go, in fact. 
Um, I when the first I was hanging out with some uh, military types when the first I believe they call it Marine Expeditionary Unit last year went into Syria, and and these are very savvy folks who are fully aware of the disaster that is Syria, but they were just like, God damn it, they would they really wanted to be there. I mean that's the all volunteer military. Uh, there's no there's nobody being. We are, you know, we're we're not seeing sons and brothers and and fathers forced into into war. So we don't we don't have any skin in the game anymore. And then also this whole drone war thing. It's while I think for the long term trajectory of U.S. empire, U.S. health or whatnot, I think you can argue that what's going on right now is significantly worse than the Vietnam War. It doesn't touch American people. Yeah, it doesn't. And also the I would hope I think we're beginning to see bits of it that. We could, we could, well, actually, no, we're not. I think that having, you know, the U.S. Mili- the U.S. media was so um, bought in, and this is an accurate sort of right-wing retreat. The U.S. media was, you know, mostly because Obama's a more attractive individual, was much more bought in to the whole Obama thing. And the significant anti-war movement during the Bush era just sort of disappeared. I mean, there's some websites and, and you know, lone Twitter freaks out there, you know, still still pushing that. But that disappeared when Obama became president because, well, it's Obama's there. It's fine. And even though he dramatically expanded the footprint of the, what is no longer known as the war on terror, nobody really paid attention. And now Trump actually, you know, I mean, two weeks ago, Trump was talking about getting out of Syria. I mean, Trump's a lot more anti-war than Obama was, which, you know, in his rhetoric. And yes, he's because he is completely lacking in mental an organizational capacity. He's being snowed by the people that surround any president uh, much more quickly than Obama was. But, you know, his instincts are kind of anti-war. What's really, really disturbing right now is how much I'm agreeing with Tucker Carlson, who's a Fox News personality. I think, you know, of course, in his half hour, hour long show, there's three segments about how brown people are scary. But then he'll, he'll talk about Syria and he'll be like, why is this in our interest? I think he's a little too, I think he's choosing to die on the, did Assad really use chemical weapons hill a little too much? I think the consensus is he he, he did. But no, I mean, he's asking legitimate questions. And he's like, you know, he had some senator on and was like, so why are we going after Assad? And the senators were like, well, it's very important to fight ISIS. He was like, yeah, well, what does going, you know, bombing Assad have to do with fighting ISIS? So yeah, I think that the protest movement we had in the Bush years was very into the sort of left-wing, right-wing marketing segmentations. And those things are still too screwed up. And uh, we had Samantha Power giving all these earnest talks about how it was a new Rwanda, that we weren't fighting Assad. And while there's, there's a switch, there's a partisan switch that can be made, when you've got Trump, you've got a media that wants to attack Trump for saying, I think, one of the only sensible things on Syria that's ever been said by a president, like, let's get the fuck out of here, a couple of weeks back. You've got the media that attacks that because they're still remembering Obama and Samantha Power and all these people who are capable of stringing sentences together and went to the right schools saying, you know, really affecting stuff, about duty to protect. Uh, despite the fact that if you actually look at like, I think probably the nastiest thing that happened in the last two years in Syria is probably our taking of Rakah. But yeah. So I have my own little perspective on this one, which is that, you know, if you want to look at sort of tides of history, the way they ebb and flow. It seems to me that if you're going to talk about protest as a general phenomena, a phenomenon rather, 1968 was kind of a high point uh, for protest, was the point at which the tide began to ebb again. Mm -hmm. You've got the Chicago Convention in 68, where the 
Mayor Daly calls in hundreds, like a hundred thousand policemen and brutalizes a giant anti-war protest. We've got the riots in Paris in the same year. Mexican protesters in the square of Tlatelolco in Mexico City get murdered by the thousands by the Mexican government. Thousands? Thousands. The numbers, numbers have never come down again, but there was hundreds of people dead in the square and then hundreds of people dead in the streets around. They cleaned them up before before daylight. Mm. But any in any case, 1968 was like the year that the counterculture began to swing back to reaction, is, is my impression. You know, you have Kent State in what happened. 70. 70? Okay. But what ends up happening is sort of maybe the nadir of this swing is when the baby boomers who participated in the counterculture become yuppies and participate fully in the Reagan revolution. And there were big protests in the U.S. after the beginning of the Iraq war, and there was somewhat of a protest movement. I think now in 2018, 50 years later, we're just finally starting to remember how to protest again, which is sustained in danger of losing your job and your position. You know, I, I was fascinated with, with the 1960s counterculture, and I thought when I got to college, we'd be protesting stuff. But only the weirdos who weren't worried about not looking like good, upstanding, young, preppy college mm. students, but people who were out protesting. And I was still possessed of this sort of post-9-11 culture where I had to be i had to be one of the serious people at the table, uh, one of the people who's going to be a foreign service officer. That's interesting to hear. So 10 years later, you, there's still an affection for that whole counterculture thing like was that you or like you would you say more broadly that there was a you know this sort of oh we missed out on the 60s sort of like you know i mean i think there's an idea that like college is the time when we're going to participate in that same and then we get there and we realize that we're all much too afraid to do that i'm not going to miss class to protest something um, I, was, I was too busy drinking and, and having a great time um, yeah and I think, like I said, I think we're just barely coming back to it. Because you look at you look at stuff like our big planned protests where it's like walk out of work for a day, uh, where it's going to take another 20 years to figure out it's like walk out of work and stay away because otherwise you're not going to change anything. You know, I think I think we move in these long cycles. And the reason we're not having sustained anti-war protests now is one giant part of it is that nobody knows anybody who's actually over there. Uh, not entirely true, but compared to the original Vietnam, very different. That and part of it's we just we don't even know how to do it anymore. I can say the high point of my life and probably uh, the, one of the most and probably why I, I started a YouTube channel uh, ended up being quite tragic, I guess, for the Turkish people. But in uh, 2013 in Istanbul and also th across Turkey, like the whole country rose up and I actually got to see a mass protest movement with battles with police and uh, tear gassing and whatnot. A lot of it happened in my neighborhood. And it's, it's, it's truly an extraordinary thing to be a part of. You know, maybe people should emphasize that more, man. Shit, that shit's fun, you know? Yeah. Of course it didn't. Well, I think it'll Gezi will end up being remembered very well. It did not have the immediate effects that was that were hoped for. The one other question I had taken down here was, or I guess it's a two-part question. First part was how old am I? Uh, which is 10 days off of 27. And the second was, what is the main obstacle to US Iran rapprochement? The, the, what? the main obstacle to US Iranian rapprochement. On one side, the Muslims. On the other side, the Fox News right-wing propaganda apparatus. Working. Uh, and American liberals' willingness to participate in the narratives that it creates. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, Real obstacles? None. I can't, but for the first, I think probably for the first time ever, some of my viewers will be uh, happy to see this. I'll actually bring it up. Uh, IPAC spent a lot of time in the comments telling people that the Jewish lobby doesn't explain everything. But yes, Israel and the, the sort of supporters in the U.S. are definitely an obstacle to approachment. But I would say that the most important thing is the, uh, the priorities of the military-industrial complex. You know, we need bad guys. We need enemies. And Iran, 
despite the fact that they are much more sinned against than sinning in the in the in the relationship, they're they're, they're very convenient baddies. They say stupid stuff about Israel, about other places, or at least did with an old president, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It's going to be fascinating to see how the U.S. Congress and uh, other lobbyists hold on to their talking points about the, you know, Iran wants to eradicate Israel after the Supreme Leader dies. Because he hasn't said anything like that for five, five years or so, and he's about to die. And they're going to basically have like a Supreme Leader who's dead and president who was voted out five to 10 years ago to claim that Iran wants to you know, wants to nuke Israel. But they'll still say it. They'll still say it. I think there's just a lot of, there's a tremendous infrastructure built in terms of think tanks, journalism, fellowships, academia, built around this fantasy that Iran has hegemonic ambitions. I mean, it is so transparently stupid. Like, you just need to look at things, like, very basically. Like, look at, oh, I don't know how few Shia there are in the Muslim world Mm -hmm. uh, to realize that this... This shit that they're talking is garbage. Um, what's what? What the biggest obstacle, actually, I think, to I think looking at Iran rationally is actually continued warfare. Because what's crazy is just how quickly Iraq more or less stabilized in the past year or so. And the first thing that Iraq's leaders want to do is get in good with Saudi Arabia. We've been told um, it is true that we gave Iran tremendous influence in Iraq by overthrowing Saddam Hussein. But the sort of standard story now is that we've built a land bridge to Hezbollah and they're going to, and like Iraq's not interested in that. They've still got Iranian armed militias on the ground playing a part in the security of the country. And they're already trying to run to Saudi Arabia. They're already trying to get more rebuilding money. So it's Iran's power in the region is actually accelerated by ongoing warfare. If things just stopped, even Assad I've read some stuff where Assad is much more interested in getting Russian money, because the Russians have more money, but also is just much more interested in, because the Iranians, to some degree, have infiltrated his country and taken over his regime in ways that he really doesn't fucking like. So as soon as the fighting stops, he's going to go try to lump more heavily for Russia than he is for Iran. So this sort of Israeli tactic of just bombing, you know, just keeping the war churning by bombing Iranian emplacements, it, it makes Iran more powerful. Because if as if Assad and the Iraqi regime are further on their back feet dealing with military threats, then Iran is more powerful because Iran actually has the militias and you know is willing to send militias and soldiers to fight and die, whereas Russia has cruise missiles. Um, yeah, my sister mentions Catherine Coombs, who I don't bring up enough in the podcast. I've, I've been led to let to know um, mentions that she's read a think piece about how student debt might actually be suppressing student protest. I think that's right. I mean, I, th- I think U.S. college students right now are much more delineated in their life and career choices than they were previously. I think the average college student graduates with something like thirty thousand dollars in debt, and that's balanced out by people like me who are lucky enough to graduate with none, which means that a lot of kids are graduating with with huge burdens. And since two thousand eight, into a not particularly excellent job market for college graduates, so. Yeah, absolutely. You're much less willing to protest if you've got $100,000 in debt weighing down on you. You know? You're much less willing to put anything on the line. I think that's very true. And when I was in when I was in Michigan, that was what was fascinating to me is we have this super woke left-wing administration and then we had very small groups of student protests, but like 
and this is, you know, this is back in the turn of the century. This is, you know, 16 years back in terms of cost, sorry, 18 years back in terms of cost of college. And the vast majority of the people there just wanted to have a good time, get their qualifications and get to a nice job. This idea of university as, you know, sort of development and concern and learning to be a citizen of the world, like that's, that's long gone. It's very professionally focused and has been for quite some time. Did you see this one from Quentin Lewis Adler? Would another war create jobs in the United States? I think it all comes down to this. Yeah, I got two responses right under that that I think pretty much encapsulate the, uh, not must we mobilize because war is a boutique industry nowadays. Um, problem being that a lot of guys who are, well, at least it used to be big shots in government uh, are involved in that boutique industry. I disagree, actually. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for the uh, the way that it sort of spins around. I mean, defense is currently only 5 to 10% of the California economy. But as with a lot of figures, um, 5 to 10% is a hell of a lot. And it's like the, the with, with economic questions, if you think about a business, or if you take 5 to 10% of the business of a given business on a stock market, away, then a whole bunch of other things become impossible. You can't finance things. You can't. Mm. Five to 10% is still massive. And also I did a video on this. I'm like, why war industries are so powerful is that like in sort of modern capitalism, we have a lot of strictures, some WTO enforced, some legally enforced, and uh, sort of a lot of approaches, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, like a lot of things that intentionally sever the connection between business and government in a lot of ways. Whereas with military stuff, that connection is reinforced. There's no WTO oversight or competition authority oversight of defense contractors. Because I think very rationally, there's a national security exception. And I guess this kind of gets to your point, like the kind of like batshit lunatic connection between government and the military is more significant. And the jobs that are provided are sort of higher value because they're always going to be there. If a soap factory or a soap manufacturer or even something much more complicated, say a computer manufacturer, wants to build something in your district, yeah, you're going to want to do things for them, this, that, and the other thing. But then Taiwan starts making better soap or better computers and that factory's gone. But the thing about the defense industry is there's all of these incredible, not just, I mean, the defense department acts as your sales staff. That's what is at the root of all this stuff in Africa that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. If you get a defense industry factory in your jurisdiction, it's going to be there 50 years later. You know, it's going to be there for the entirety of your term. It's going to fund you. It's going to put those jobs there. It's reliable. So A, like the fact that, yes, it's only 5 to 10% of U.S. economy at this point is, I think, more significant than a lot of people realize. It's, I, I mean, I spent some time as a stockbroker, corporate law stuff. It's like, yeah, you like carve off 5 to 10% of and a very reliable 5 to 10% of an economic entity, problems ensue very quickly. And also beyond that, like this defense spending that is created by another war, by continuing wars, is reliable. And politicians love that. So yeah. I, I would I would actually be more on Quentin's side. Well, uh, the one thing to say there is uh, if you look at the textbooks in economic terms, Military spending is the least efficient use of government money. Building roads, building a space program, food stamps especially, there's way more efficient ways to spend money. But to Rob's point, the military industrial complex is the only place where conservatives are comfortable engaging in Keynesian economics. That is government spending to create jobs. That's the only place they're willing to do it, which ends up 
being the place that they do it. Yeah. The, the U.S. military industrial complex is the most effective jobs program in history. We basically, it's war socialism extending from 19, the, the late 1930s until today. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how, that is the appropriate way to understand the military industrial complex. There certainly are sinister things like Halliburton and, and Dick Cheney sitting on a private island somewhere, but there are also tens of thousands of jobs, not just directly in these industries, but beyond that, that rely on this sort of positioning, um, not just in the United States. It's something that I'm trying to deal with, and I think I'm finally going to put some stuff out about we're not going to get the military industrial complex to go away. Go away. It's just not going to happen. Like the, the question is, how can we shift it towards something that's, that's more positive? Mm-hmm. All right. We're running up on two hours, 40 minutes. If there's any of the substantive questions in the chat, I think we should tackle those and I think we should wrap up. Mm-hmm.